This is a bonus episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. There was a respiratory therapist named Teresita Bassa. Well, she befriended a co-worker who said he was going to come over and fix her TV for her. So he came over. The next thing that happened, her apartment was ransacked. The apartment was on fire and she was dead. They were having the hardest time solving the crime. Folklore has it that clues were provided by her after her death. Georgette Ginter worked at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital. She and others there were shocked by the gruesome murder of their colleague, Teresita Bassa. Most upsetting is that the accused killer, Alan Showery, was one of their own. Alan Showery worked as an orderly at Edgewater Hospital, meaning he assisted the medical and nursing staff. But Alan liked to say he was a doctor. The extent of Alan's medical knowledge came after spending a few months in the hospital following a work injury years earlier. He eventually recovered and walked away with a $12,000 settlement, but blew that money on a new car, clothes, and photography equipment. He then went to work at a handful of Chicago hospitals. When news broke of Alan's arrest, several female Edgewater employees came forward and admitted they were having affairs with him. Some even said they were in love with him. Along with Alan being quite the ladies' man, he also was known for selling jewelry at the hospital. The problem was, some of that jewelry was stolen. Security at Edgewater Hospital heard that Alan lifted jewelry from patients and then sold it to other employees. In fact, after Alan's arrest, many turned over jewelry that Alan had given them out of fear it was stolen. The police also learned that Alan had another wife and child in Alabama, who he abandoned when he moved to Chicago. Alan also claimed to be a Vietnam vet, but that turned out to be a lie as well. Alan's parade of lies created quite a mess for his team of public defenders. Bill Swano was Alan's lawyer who convinced him to let a jury decide his fate, even though Alan had already confessed to the crime. Swano's first move was to file a motion to suppress Alan's confession, the jewelry as evidence, and to cancel Alan's arrest. Even though the motion got denied, the defense did it for a reason. The reason they did this was to make the prosecution admit that the cops were tipped off by a ghost. Alan Showery was ordered to stand trial. Just before the trial began, the Chicago Tribune ran a story with the headline, Did Voice from the Grave Name Killer? It was picked up by dozens of newspapers and caught the attention of people all across the world. In January of 1979, the Voice from the Grave case finally got underway. The case landed in the courtroom of Judge Frank Barbero, with the reputation for handing out 200 to 300 year prison sentences, lawyers called Judge Barbero, Judge Barbecue. News reporters from all across the country filled every seat in the courtroom. Even a local high school economics class showed up. But proceedings moved at a glacial pace thanks to one of Chicago's worst winters. The year opened with snow and bitter cold, followed by a blizzard that dropped 29 inches of snow. It crippled the city's roads, airports, and elevated rail system, and also delayed the trial. Then, just after the jury was finally seated, something strange happened in Judge Barbero's courtroom. The large contingent of press covering the trial disappeared. The once standing room only courtroom suddenly was without spectators. 
Instead, the press headed to the courtroom one floor below to get their first look at the other headline-grabbing trial. In the courtroom downstairs, onlookers filled all 85 seats for the arraignment of a Chicago building contractor named John Wayne Gacy. Gacy was facing murder charges after police found several decomposing bodies under his house. Much like Teresita Bassa and Alan Showery, John Wayne Gacy also had roots at Edgewater Hospital. He was born at Edgewater, he was patient at Edgewater, and he dressed up as a clown at Edgewater. Karen Maccaro worked at Edgewater Hospital, where Gacy is said to have performed as a clown. He used to come and see the sick children. With Gacy's hearing going on downstairs, opening statements in the Teresita Bassa murder trial kicked off upstairs. Leading the case against Alan Showery was a lawyer named Tom Organ. Organ had never seen a case like this before, and he knew the defense was going to have a field day with stories of ghosts and mysterious voices. Organ said he was skeptical when he first heard the Chua's story. But after hours of questioning them, he was satisfied they had nothing to do with Teresita's murder. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a case about murder. And that man, Alan Showery, murdered and robbed Teresita Bassa and set fire to her apartment to cover it up. In his opening statement to the eight men and four women jurors, Organ danced around the elephant in the room. I'm sure none of us has ever heard a story as bizarre as this, but the police could not ignore it. He shared that no fingerprints were found on the knife used to kill Teresita. The only prints they found in her apartment were on two beer cans. But those prints couldn't be traced to anyone. Most importantly for Tom Organ, he had to prove the police did everything by the book and that Alan Showery was not only a liar, but a cold-blooded murderer. Alan Showery and his team of public defenders sat on the other side of the courtroom. During opening statements, his crafty lawyer, Bill Swano, addressed the jury. I say to you, this man is innocent and the state's case is nothing but a fishing boat riddled with many reasonable doubts. That boat won't float. 25 years before Johnny Cochran uttered, if it don't fit, you must acquit, Bill Swano gave us that boat won't float. There is no doubt that Teresita Basso was brutally murdered, but there is also no doubt that Alan Showery was not the murderer. He told jurors that the police investigation stalled, and then this voice conveniently identified Alan Showery as the killer. We are going to prove him innocent. He then pointed the finger back at Remy Chua, and asked the jurors to question her motives. Mrs. Chua was in the process of being fired from her job at Edgewater Hospital when she was visited by the mystery voice. He suggested that Remy might have had a psychic episode and Alan was caught in the middle. Or maybe she just made the whole thing up. Either way, he wanted jurors to know that Remy Chua should not be trusted. She had personal problems. Prosecutors began by calling the first responders. They described the chilling scene of finding Teresita's body with a knife protruding from her chest. The medical examiner then described the manner in which Teresita was killed. He noted that the knife was thrust so hard into her chest that it wasn't easy to remove. He then added that a pathological exam revealed that Teresita was still a virgin. Lead detective Joe Stahula then testified about how information from the Chua's led him to Allen and the stolen jewelry. My decision was not to discard the information, but to check out what was told to me. And that even though the information was a bit far-fetched, he still had to investigate. 
She wanted Dr. Chua to notify the police of this information. He carefully explained how the voice from the grave asked Dr. Chua to notify the police. Initially, he was embarrassed and didn't want to unjustly accuse Alan Showery. But the voice became more and more insistent, even commanding. The state's attorney who took Alan's confession was the next witness. Alan said he was having severe financial problems and decided to rob Ms. Bassa. Alan said he choked her, and while she was unconscious, he went to her purse and stole $30. The defendant was asked if he gave the statement freely and of his own free will. He testified that everything was done by the book. The defendant answered freely and of his own free will. The room went completely silent as he meticulously read Alan's 13-page confession out loud. He then carried her to the bedroom, disrobed her, proceeded in the kitchen and got a knife and stabbed her. He then flipped over her mattress and set it on fire. Before leaving, he ransacked the apartment and also stole some of her jewelry. The Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and another heavy round of snow postponed the trial again. And when it resumed four days later, prosecutors surprised everyone when they announced, Your Honor, the state rests. With the ball now in the hands of Allen's defense lawyer, Bill Swano, he immediately went to work. He called people from Teresita's apartment to the stand and asked each one if they ever saw Alan Showery. Every answer was the same. No, no, sir. No, I did not. The defense then called an evidence technician who, even by 1979 standards, shared some interesting evidence. Five strands of hair were found on Teresita's left arm. They were between four and seven inches in length and treated with bleach or dye. A hair expert followed and said those hairs belonged to neither Teresita nor Alan. The court also heard from Alan and Yanka's former landlord. She said the couple were behind in their rent payments in the months leading up to Teresita's murder and that eviction proceedings were underway. Even though Alan made a couple payments prior to Teresita's murder, they still owed $130. When the defense called Remy Chua to the stand, prosecutor Tom Organ jumped to his feet, objecting to her testimony. He claimed the Chua's had no relevant testimony to the guilt or innocence of Alan Chowery. The defense disagreed. Your Honor, while I myself do not believe the Chua's story, the defense would like to put them on the stand to show that the three comatose episodes might have been fabricated. The judge allowed the Chua's testimony. The courtroom went completely silent as Remy Chua walked to the stand. She testified that she met Teresita during orientation at Edgewater Hospital in 1975, but really didn't know her because the two worked opposite shifts. But she was well aware of Alan Showery. The two worked together twice a week. Swano then brought up Remy's three psychic episodes, or seizures, as he called them. He asked her what she remembered about them. All I remember is hearing the name Al. Al is in Alan Showery? Yes. What else do you remember about those psychic seizures? I felt cold and thirsty. I remember nothing. Then things got interesting. The defense lawyers wanted to know about Remy's side hustle. Remy explained that she sold jewelry. Sometimes she sold it to fellow employees and one of her customers was Alan Showery. Remy sold Alan a diamond ring, but Alan wound up canceling the sale. He returned the ring to me three months later. 
She explained that Ellen couldn't afford the $250 price tag. And I returned the deposit. Then Ellen's lawyer presented the pearl cocktail ring, the one Ellen gave Yanka as a late Christmas gift, and the same ring that was taken from Teresita's apartment the night she was murdered. Did you sell this cocktail ring to Alan for $28? No. And this jade pendant, didn't you sell it to Alan for $100? No. With Remy's credibility in question, prosecutor Tom Oregon used his cross-examination to restore it. But one question he asked caught everyone by surprise, including Remy. Did you kill Teresita Bassa? No. As Remy exited the witness stand, her husband, Dr. Jose Chua, was called to testify. She would speak with a strange Spanish accent and said her name was Teresita Bassa. As Dr. Chua shared the three times Teresita's spirit took over his wife's body and pleaded for his help, some of the jurors looked on with squinted eyes and confused looks on their faces. She explained that Alan Showery killed her and took her jewelry. There was no cross-examination. More bad weather delayed the trial yet again. When things resumed, the defense called a martial arts instructor to the stand. In Alan's original confession, he claimed to use a full Nelson to knock out Teresita. The curious jurors looked on as this expert demonstrated a full Nelson. This instructor explained that pressure gets applied to the back of the neck. Keep in mind the medical examiner reported injuries to the front of Teresita's neck. With the line of witnesses that cast plenty of doubt in the minds of jurors, the defense was ready to call Alan Showery to the stand. Alan Showery was on trial for the murder of Teresita Bassa. The two were colleagues at Edgewater Hospital. Police arrested Alan after Teresita's ghost named Alan as her killer. Despite confessing to her murder, Alan now sat on the witness stand attempting to convince the jury that he was innocent. He testified that on the night of Teresita's murder, he left work and then spent some time at a Chicago bar called The Roadhouse. I shot two games of pool, drank beer and left around 6 p.m. Then I went home and had dinner with Yanka. Yanka was his wife at the time. During the time of Teresita's murder, Alan testified that he was at a neighbor's house he said he was drinking a bottle of whiskey and playing darts for the next couple hours there before Yanka joined them. He and Yanka then returned home around 10 p.m. On the night police questioned Alan, he claimed he had been drinking and wasn't in any shape to talk, but... The police said they were going to arrest Yanka and me for the murder. They said, I would never see Yanka or the child again, but if I confessed, Yanka would go free. Alan said he didn't want his very pregnant wife to be hauled off to jail. So he confessed to the murder of Teresita Bassa, but he said he was just kidding. Alan's lawyer asked if he choked Teresita. No. Stabbed Teresita? No. Or killed Teresita? No. Alan said he knew about the homicide because he read about it in the newspaper and that the two detectives coached him on what to say. I never helped her with immigration. I don't even know what immigration is. I didn't know anything about karate or judo. I just, I just threw it in. During cross-examination, Tom Morgan asked about Alan's job application from Edgewater Hospital. On his application, Alan lied about where he went to college and that he worked as a surgical assistant. I was advised it would be impressive to 
put things down like that on the application. I see. You just threw it in. As Tom Organ walked back to his seat, he muttered, I tore him a new asshole. Each day throughout the trial, a woman showed up wearing a bright red coat. Ellen would lock eyes with her and the two routinely smiled at one another. So a reporter finally asked her who she was. She said her name was Naomi and that she also worked at Edgewater Hospital. But that was all she revealed. Meanwhile, Ellen's wife, Yanka, was noticeably absent during the trial. She finally showed up when the defense called her as a witness. Unlike Ellen's new friend, Naomi, he avoided eye contact with Yanka. Instead, he stared directly at the table in front of him. Yanka testified that on the night of Teresita's murder, Alan came home around 6 p.m. Then they went to their neighbor's house where the boys played darts while the ladies drank wine. She added that Alan often gave her jewelry, about 20 pieces in total. Two of those pieces were the pearl cocktail ring and the jade pendant. Alan told her he bought the ring at Edgewater Hospital, but he never mentioned where he got the pendant. On the night police questioned Alan, Yanka said Alan was tense and nervous and that he only confessed to the murder because the police threatened to arrest her as an accessory and Alan didn't want her giving birth to their child in jail. She testified that police seemed startled when they saw a book about ghosts in their apartment and asked her if she was superstitious and believed in ghosts. She said she wasn't. During cross-examination, prosecutors shared Yanka's original statement to the police a statement where she claimed she was out shopping and didn't know Alan's whereabouts on the night of the murder. Yanka testified that her statement was incorrect. The defense then called Alan and Yanka's former neighbor, the one whose house Alan and Yanka claimed to be at on the night of Teresita's murder. But the neighbor said she couldn't remember the exact date Alan and Yanka came over. She believed it was somewhere around February 21st, which was the night of Teresita's murder. After calling 33 witnesses, both sides moved to their closing arguments. The prosecution tried to focus the jurors' attention away from the bizarre circumstances that led the police to Allen. Police would be remiss if they did not follow up on each and every lead furnished by the public, no matter what it sounds like. Organ then grabbed the pearl cocktail ring and jade pendant and looked at each juror. These are the family heirlooms of Teresita, and they weren't sold by Mrs. Chua. That man, Alan Showery, killed Teresita for them. He confessed freely and of his own will. Alan Showery is an educated man in his 30s, not some 16-year-old kid who might be easy prey to intimidation by the police. Ladies and gentlemen, when you decide this case, I urge you to use your common sense. Don't be misled by a lot of smoke. Defense attorney Bill Swano used his time to create more smoke. Alan's fingerprints were not found on the knife or anywhere else in the apartment. He pointed out that there were other suspects, like a drunken man seen arguing with Teresita two weeks before her death. Plus, there were those mysterious strands of hair found on Teresita's body. Those hairs did not belong to Alan. In a classic defense move, Alan's lawyers placed the blame on investigators. The police broke Alan Showery. He called Detective Joe Stahula overzealous and someone who took one too many shortcuts. The police were led to Allen because of Dr. Jose and Remy Chua. 
The defense shared that Remy had been pregnant and lost the baby around the time of the murder. He also reminded the jurors that Remy's behavior at Edgewater Hospital caused her to be fired. If you believe her that a voice from Teresita Bassa spoke through her lips and that is how she knew Alan Showery had the jewelry, well, if you believe that story, then don't believe Alan Showery. He suggested that maybe it was Remy who sold Teresita's jewelry to Alan. The final word came from prosecuting attorney Tom Morgan. Tom stood up, slowly walked to the windows, and pointed out how more snow was falling. I know the elements outside are bad, but I didn't think you'd get a snow job inside the courtroom. This was a brutal and senseless murder. Did Mrs. Chua have a vision? Did Teresita Bassa come back from the dead and name Alan as her slayer? I don't know. I'm a skeptic. Maybe she heard it at the hospital. Maybe the defendant told her at the hospital. What does matter is that the information checked out. The jewelry was found and Alan Showery confessed. He took the murder weapon and dramatically lifted it high above him. Alan said he was just kidding when he confessed. Well, Alan Showery, you weren't kidding when you plunged this knife into Teresita Bassa's chest. After an afternoon of jury deliberations, Alan Showery's fate remained in limbo. Since they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict, a bus shuttled the jurors to a nearby Holiday Inn where they spent the night. The next morning, the jury sent the judge a vague note with a request for information about people like investigators Stahula and Mrs. Loeb. But the judge simply responded with a note of his own. He wrote, you have heard the evidence, continue to deliberate. The jurors passed around a secret ballot. The results revealed four for innocent, four for guilty, and the other four were undecided. That afternoon, the jury sent another note to the judge, and the judge ignored it. Another day ended without a verdict, meaning the jurors were spending another night at the Holiday Inn. The next morning, jurors filled out another secret ballot. This time, there were seven for acquittal, four for conviction, and one undecided. The deadlock continued. That afternoon, after 13 hours and 40 minutes of deliberations, the foreman scribbled another note for the judge. Judge Barbero read the note and then summoned everyone back to the courtroom. He shared that the jury was hopelessly deadlocked and declared a mistrial. This meant that Allen would face a second trial. Allen's lawyer was thrilled he saw the jury's indecision as a huge win and assured Alan that next time he'll be home free. Alan's second trial was scheduled for a few weeks later, but for now, he returned to his jail cell. The mysterious investigation of who killed Teresita Bassa comes with countless twists, turns, and surprises. For weeks, police followed up on dead-end leads before the case went cold. An arrest finally was made when the victim's ghost named her killer. But this almost unbelievable story had one final twist. On the night of February 21st, 1979, the two-year anniversary of Teresita Bassa's death, Alan Showery placed a phone call to his attorney. He said the two needed to talk. The next morning, Alan and his lawyers gathered before Judge Barbero. That's when Alan's attorney informed the judge that Alan 
against the advice of his legal team, had a change of heart. It was news no one in the courtroom was expecting. Alan Showery once again pled guilty to the murder of Teresita Bassa. The judge known for handing out heavy sentences then ordered Alan Showery to serve 14 years in prison. At that time, 14 years was Illinois' minimum sentence for murder. And with that, this bizarre case came to a sudden, unexpected, and mysterious end. Whatever was said in that conversation between Alan and his attorney remains unknown. All we know is that it happened on the two-year anniversary of Teresita's murder. Just before being shipped off to prison, Alan agreed to an interview. My conscience and feelings are governed by the words in the Bible. I look at this whole thing as an experience. Someday when I am released, I want to be known not as Alan Showery, the ex-convict or the voice from the grave killer, but as Alan Showery, the man. Despite twice confessing to the murder, Alan pointed the blame squarely at Remy Chua. She was very nervous after the murder. I don't know why she named me. She was definitely upset about something. Alan accused her of making up the whole voice from the grave story. Without a doubt, she faked it. I think it was designed for someone else, but I got caught by my Achilles heel, so to speak. I had been critical of her job performance with patients, and that is a motive. We were working together on the evening shift. I was reading and doing research on witchcraft and voodoo and things like that. I used to bring in a few books on, to the job and read them, and she didn't like these interests of mine. Alan served four and a half years in prison before being released in 1983. After the trial, Remy and Jose Chua steered clear of the spotlight and said they didn't like the attention. But that didn't stop them from writing a book. When it hit bookstores in 1979, the book's publisher shared stories of unexplained and even supernatural events. One editor claimed she walked into her office and found paper notes spinning around her desk. Others said they were subject to a bunch of mysterious phone calls. Another claimed to hear an ad for the book on the radio, even though there were no ads running. Along with a couple of books, a movie was also made about the case. Even the original TV version of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack profiled this story in 1990. In fact, the series co-creator said the story ranks in her top 10 of the creepiest cases the show has ever profiled. It's also a case popular with podcasters, including Strangeful Things, hosted by Acadia Einstein. As far as the Chicago legal system is concerned, Teresita Bassa was murdered by Alan Showery, and they cracked the case because the ghost of Teresita Bassa came back and said, this is who killed me, and this is the stuff that he took. And that's the piece of it that makes this case so crazy. They got their guy to the cops. They were like, yeah, big deal, ghost, no ghost. It still came out of that woman's mouth. But what do people think really happened? The most common theory is that she had overheard Showery talking in great detail about the murder he committed and the specifics of the jewelry he stole. Other than that, unless she was in on it with him, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And what about you? What do you think actually happened? I think that Remy had a conversation with Alan in the break room that really shouldn't have taken place, but did. 
That's the only thing I can think of. The only thing that that is non-ghost that would make this case make sense. More than 44 years after Teresita's murder, fans of true crime continue to debate and discuss the case. Did Teresita Bassa really come back from the grave to name her killer? Most of those involved with the case remain skeptical. But there's one thing for certain. Absolutely no one who worked the case wants to talk about it. Check out our show notes or our website for more about this story at thewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from Edric McNeary, read for Alan Showery, Paul Weber, read for Thomas Organ, Brandon Shupi, read for Detective Joe Stahula, Clay Addy, read for Bill Swano, Anthony Corris, read for the state's attorney. This episode was edited by Zach Broteau. Sound from freesfx.co.uk and Zapsplat. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube audio libraries. The Six Realms and the Temple of the Mind by I Think I Can Help You. A Great Darkness Approaches Can You Feel It by Elephant. Without Answer by Alex Kashkin is used under license through Neo Sounds. Courtroom Thriller 5 by Damian Martin Turnbull. Breathing Down My Neck by Alex Kashkin. Tension Pulse by Bjorn Lynn. And Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Balachenko are all used under license through Neo Sounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.